a very interesting thing happened on the way out of Egypt. After the ten plagues, after manna began falling from the sky on a daily basis, in order for the children of Israel to survive, to live, after Moses produced water from a rock, after they crossed the Red Sea, something really interesting happened as the children of Israel were leaving Egypt, were headed out into the desert. And the really interesting thing that happened is this. They took all their gold, they melted it down, and they built a golden calf. Then they worshipped this golden calf that they had built themselves, okay, to attract a new God, a different God than the one that had already done all these things that had happened, the plagues, the manna, the water from the rock, the Red Sea, all that stuff. They, they built a, they took all their gold, they built a cow, a golden cow, a calf, and then tried to summon a new God to replace the God who had done all these other things for them. So, so, the, so the God that they, that they liked at the beginning of the story, who sent down the plagues upon the Egyptians, you know, because that's how they got out of Egypt originally. They were enslaved by the Egyptians. They were enslaved by Pharaoh. And Moses asked Pharaoh, hey, maybe you ought to let all these slaves go. Let my people go. That's the old refrain. Pharaoh wouldn't, of course. And so God rained down plagues upon the Egyptians and upon Pharaoh. One plague after another, these horrific plagues. And the children of Israel, while these plagues are being rained down on Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians, they're being spared. Then God leads them out into the desert. There's two million of them, by the way, two million of the children of Israel that leave Egypt. So they go out into the desert, then they go up right to the edge of the Red Sea, and the armies of the Egyptians are descending upon them, and then God divides the Red Sea, and they cross on dry land. Then, while they're starving later in the desert, this same God rains down manna from heaven every day, so they have something to eat, and then he provides water from a rock via Moses. It appears like a pretty obvious series of miracles orchestrated by God for the benefit of the children of Israel. And by the way, before all these miracles, they had been praying to this God, demanding some sort of salvation. And it came. They were saved. They were released from their bondage. Yet after all this later, in the story, the children of Israel collectively decide to gather up all their gold, melt it down, shape it into the form of a calf, and then they decided to dance and chant and worship this calf in the hopes of summoning a new God, a different God, to replace the God that had just done all these marvelous things. How very interesting and strange. And the question, of course, is after all these things, after all these miracles, after all these supernatural experiences, seen collectively with their own eyes, why on earth would they, would they effectively dream up a new method of summoning a replacement God for the one who, well, you know, 
by just about any objective measure, had answered the call. That doesn't seem to make any sense. And you're right. It made no sense at all. Except, well, it sort of did. Because, you know, the decision to melt down all the gold and build the calf and start to, you know, try to summon a new god, a replacement god, well, that didn't happen totally out of the blue. It happened after Moses, you know, this prophet, this shaman, the magic man, Moses. It happened after he kind of disappeared. After the plagues, after crossing the Red Sea, after eating the manna, after drinking the water from the rock, after living in the desert for a while, Moses one day went up into the mountains. And Moses, now you got to remember, Moses was this, you know, beyond, at least in the eyes of the children of Israel. I mean, he was like, he was like an alien. He had this magic staff that would turn into a, a snake. And he, he seemed to be the one who was the conduit for all the plagues. Back when they were still in bondage, still enslaved in Egypt, it seemed every time Moses raised up his arms, some horrific cataclysm rained down from the sky on the Egyptians. The Nile turned to blood. Crickets. Fire hailed from the sky. All the cows died. Frogs leapt out of the Nile. All the Egyptians got boils. I mean, this is just a partial list of the plagues that this magic man Moses seemed to, seemed to cause to happen on the Egyptians. You know, and Moses told the children of Israel, hey, this is God working through me. This is really God doing all this. But, you know, to the average enslaved, uneducated Israelite, I mean, it must have really seemed like, well, Moses was doing all this. And maybe God worked through Moses. Okay, maybe they could make that logical leap. But God wasn't working through them. He was working through Moses. And then when they got trapped up against the Red Sea later in the story, and the Egyptian army appeared to have them cornered and was riding in to destroy them, it was Moses who went out and parted the Red Sea. At least that's, you know, if, if you were just kind of watching from the sidelines, it looked like Moses was doing all this stuff. Moses brought the plagues. Moses divided the Red Sea. Moses was the shaman, the magician, the miracle man, you know, however you want to think about it. Well, one day, this guy disappeared. They'd been out in the desert, and one day he decides to go up into the mountain. Moses did that from time to time, but he never stayed up there all that long. Well, this time, he stayed up there for a long time. And we don't know exactly how long that was. But it was long enough where people said, hmm, this seems, this seems too long. Something's not right here. You know, we've all had that feeling. Something's taken longer than we thought. You know, mom just left to go to the store to get some milk. But that was eight hours ago. You know that feeling. You go on a great date. And then the person you have the great date with says, hey, I'll call you. And then a day or two goes by and there's no call. And then it's a week or two weeks. And, you know, we all have this inner sense when something is, has taken too long. And there's this inner clock we all have where we say, you know, something just isn't right. Maybe mom isn't coming home from the store. Maybe that person I went on the date with is never going to call. Maybe I'm not going to get that job offer. 
or, or whatever it is you're waiting for. Well, the children of Israel saw Moses go up into the mountain, and they expected him to come down within the reasonable time, whatever that was, and then he didn't. And then they waited longer and longer and longer. And then it, at some point, it dawned on them. Hey, we're out here in the middle of the desert, and the magic man, the alien who divided the Red Sea, the guy with the magic staff, well, now he's gone. And they looked around, and they, and they thought, well, who's, who's the new magic man? And they saw Aaron, Moses' brother, there. But Aaron, you know, Aaron wasn't Moses. You know, Aaron, Aaron was Tito Jackson. Aaron wasn't Michael Jackson. Aaron was Tito. And they looked around, and there's no one else in the tribe who seemed alien-like. No one else in the tribe who seemed like some great shaman. And then it happened. They collectively freaked out. And you can sort of understand it. Here in Utah, here in my new home, there's a place west of Salt Lake called the West Desert. And it's barren. And it's awesome. It's beautiful. It's incredible. But, you know, I wouldn't want to be trapped out there without a car or without water. When I first moved to town, I went out there and rode my bike around. And it was, it was like 98 degrees in August. And I was out in the West Desert riding my bike around. And during the summers, it's so hot and dry out there that, that the ground turns to sand. It's sandy, like a beach. That's how dry it is. You know, and I rode my bike around there and sort of fumbled around in the sand and the dry grass. And, but then after an hour or so of this, I you know, put my bike in my car and I drove home. Had I been stuck out there and the magic alien who led me out there disappeared, I, well, at first I'd be a little nervous and then I'd wait. And, but then at some point I'd think, hold on a second, this is some kind of cosmic joke being played on me. What am I doing out here? I thought it was going to be so great and now I'm stuck out here. That's the conclusion many of us often come to when things start to go wrong after a long period of things going right. We start to think, what kind of cosmic joke is this? You know, for the children of Israel, everything was going so well. They were on a hot streak, weren't they? And it started with the plagues. I mean, the God in the clouds and this, this alien magic man, Moses, they were just raining down misery on the Egyptians, their captors. And that was awesome. And oh, by the way, none of the plagues affected them. The blood in the river, the frogs, the fiery hail, the dead cows, the frogs, the boils, the locusts, all that stuff was tormenting the Egyptians, their captors, but none of those things were touching the children of Israel. They were spared. Well, that makes you feel good about yourself. I mean, talk about schadenfreude. Your slave masters are suddenly being afflicted by all the powers of the universe, and you're not? I mean, it would have been impossible to not feel a little sort of perverse glee about that, wouldn't it? And the good times just kept going. I mean, they were on a hot streak. They march out into the desert to escape the Egyptians, and it, and it appears as if they're trapped up against the Red Sea. It appears as if they're in a completely indefensible position, but lo and behold, not even that matters because Moses and God can divide water, not just water, a huge sea, and it's divided, and they walk out in between this canyon of of water on dry ground. And then as they look back, the water starts collapsing on the Egyptian army as they try to cross the Red Sea. 
I mean, you start to think you're invincible when that happens, doesn't it? You start to think nothing can ever go wrong. I don't even have to put myself in an advantageous position on the battlefield. I mean, talk about a bad position on the battlefield. You're up against the Red Sea. You have no chariots. You have no spears, no arrows. It's the worst tactical position you can be in. You should be destroyed by the Egyptian army. And then the Red Sea parts and you get to cross, but the opposing army gets destroyed by the water that God and Moses are holding up for you. Well, you, you know, that builds a little confidence, doesn't it? I think I'll follow this guy, Moses, for a while. And it keeps going, the good times. Food starts raining down from the sky every day. So each morning you wake up and you, you know, go out of your tent and there's food and it's rained from the sky. And then you think, hmm, I sure could use a tall, cool glass of water to wash this manna down with and it comes from a rock. And you think, can life get any better than this? And you start to reevaluate your entire paradigm of, of how you understand the world because everything seems so easy. And because of that, well, you look around and you think, I'm going to keep following Moses. I'm going to keep following this, this God in the cloud because, well, this is awesome. And all the while, you're headed deeper and deeper and deeper into drier and more desolate desert. You're, 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 you're getting farther and farther away from normal food that you have to cultivate, from normal water that flows in streams, farther and farther away, more and more dependent on the magic man, the weird guy with the walking staff who tells you it's really God doing all this. And you can't see God. He's up ahead in the cloud that's leading you. And okay, fine. But you really don't care. Okay, whatever. Just, you know, this is great. This is, easy. This is so much better than being a slave. And then one day, Moses goes up into the mount and he says he'll be right back. But he doesn't come back. And it takes longer. And, lo- and then he's gone longer and longer, and you start looking around, and the only person left to lead you is Tito. Well, that's okay. Moses will be back soon, and but then he doesn't come back, and then it hits you. You're so far out in the middle of the dry desert, you don't even know where you, you don't even know how to get, there's no going back. You don't even know where you are, and sure, the manna seems to be coming still for the time being, but where the heck is Moses? And there's no map. You don't have any seed to plant. There are no rivers. How long before the food stops coming down from heaven? How long before the rocks aren't producing water? How long before the clothes we're wearing wear out? And oh, by the way, where are we? And then you remember the entire history of your people. For 400 years, you've been enslaved. For 400 years, the powerful abused you, manipulated you, killed your children. I mean, it's not that big of a leap to start thinking that this whole Pied Piper act of Moses was just some sort of cosmic joke to lead you out to the desert where, you know, the malevolent forces of the universe can now kill you. You've seen what they've done to the Egyptians. Now it's your turn to suffer the wrath of God, because that's how the world works. That's the way your mind begins to think. And that's, of course, what happened. 
there was a big collective freakout. You know, and the solutions that the mind proposes, the solutions that your ego proposes or comes up with during the freakout moments, well, well, those solutions never make any sense, particularly in hindsight. And the solution that the children of Israel came up with also made no sense, particularly with the benefit of hindsight. Feeling lured, feeling cornered, feeling trapped, feeling like they were the victim of some sort of horrific joke. Meanwhile, the Pied Piper who had lured them out into the desert, he's split, he's gone, he's saved himself. So, so with that backdrop, the, the solution that they come up with is, hey, let's collect all the gold together, let's build a golden calf, and let's try to summon a new God. Let's get a new God to lead us out of here. Because obviously the God that led us to this point, well, it's just a matter of time before he starts raining down the plagues on us. You know, we've been hustled. That's what they thought. We've been hustled. And, and well, we're not going to be the patsies anymore. No, sirree, Bob. We're, we're going to build ourselves a golden calf. We're going to dance around it naked, and we're going to summon a new God. Yes, this is going to work. Let's do this. Okay, everybody. Everybody chip in your gold pieces. Let's melt it all down. Let's get going. So that's what they did. That's what their solution was to this dilemma. And they build this golden calf, and they start chanting and dancing. And, you know, they're all dancing around this golden calf naked, and it's getting hot, and they're burning fires. And, you know, they're really into it because they got to summon a new God to, to save them from this God that rains plagues down on people he doesn't like. And, you know, the old God is capricious. You never know when those plagues are going to start raining down on you. And so they're dancing with great fervor around this golden calf. Well, as they're doing this, down from the mount comes Moses. And what does he have in his hand? Two tablets. And what are on the tablets? By the way, these tablets are made of stone. What's on the tablets? On the tablets are commandments, guidelines, insights on how to live your life. And these commandments, these rules, this framework on how to live more prosperously, how to live independently, these rules and guidelines, these commandments were written on the tablets by the finger of God. And and that's why Moses was up in the mount for so long. God had to write with his finger on these stone tablets. So Moses comes down from the mount now. He's been gone too long, at least in the eyes of the children of Israel. But it turns out he had a good reason. So he comes marching down. By the way, the tablets are heavy. So he's schlepping down the mountain. He's tired. He's sort of worn out from his experience watching God, you know, write on the tablets with his finger. And what does he see? The children of Israel collectively have gone totally mental. And Tito, Aaron, who, who was left in charge to babysit, he, he's complicit. He hasn't done anything to stop this disaster. And then Moses loses it. And he goes over to Aaron and he says, Aaron, what gives? What is going on here? And Aaron sort of shrugs his shoulders and said, well, you know, they, they wanted to do this and I, I couldn't stop them. They would have killed me. Well, that's not a good enough answer for Moses. And, you know, Moses is tired. He probably hasn't eaten in a while, you know, and he's cranky. And, and so Moses then flips out and he takes the tablets and he throws them at the mount. Then he walks over to the golden calf and he burned it to the ground. I'm not quite sure how that works. I don't know how you burn gold, but he burned it. 
and then he ground up the ashes into a powder, and then he put the powder into the water, and then he made all the children of Israel drink the water laced with the, with the ground up powdery ashes of the golden calf. And I guess he was trying to make a statement. He's trying to say, look, I was gone a little longer, sure, but I had a good reason, and, and, and this is what you do? You know, it's kind of like Moses was washing their mouth out with soap. You know, your mom hears you drop an F-bomb when you jam your finger while playing basketball in the backyard, and she overhears this, and she runs out, and she said, what did you say, young man? And she grabs the soap, and she washes your mouth out with soap, because she's going to, you don't, we don't use language like that. Well, that's sort of what Moses is doing here. Look, I'm gone for a, a couple days longer than you thought. Well, you know, turns out I was doing something important, and, and you build a golden idol to try to summon a new god? What, what are you, nuts? Here, here, you drink the water laced with the ashes of your horrible idol-building sin, you. You know, that seems to be what Moses is doing here. Trying to teach them a lesson that you ought to have a little faith. You ought not freak out so easily. That's the way many commentators interpret this story anyways. Many commentators say things like, well, the children of Israel had no faith. They were so weak. Oh, And they say it in a way as if had they been in a similar circumstance, they would have maintained their faith. But of course, we all know none of us would have. And the reason this story resonates with any of us is because we've all been there. We've all climbed up one rung of the evolutionary ladder. We've all started living a better life living with more faith. We've all taken the step or two or three towards God, towards our purpose. And we notice that things start to go better for us. And then we get on sort of a hot streak and things just seem to really be great. We've all had that experience. But then the rate of change of improvement in our lives slows down a little bit. Or maybe there's a minor pause in between the wonderful, miraculous experiences, the wonderful blessings we're receiving from God. There's a pause. Or maybe things start taking a little longer than we expect. And then for a moment, we've all had the thought, we've all entertained the thought that maybe we're being duped. Maybe all the good things, all the blessings, all the miracles that we're enjoying are just breadcrumbs leading us, luring us deeper into the forest, leading us blindly towards the inevitable trap. And worst of all, when we fall into that trap, we're going to really look stupid in front of everyone else. We've all had the experience of doubting the efficacy of changes that we've made in our lives to improve our lives, to live by more faith, to be more optimistic, to hope We've all had the experience of pulling ourselves up a rung or two on the ladder, only to doubt the stability of the rung, or to doubt the stability of the ladder. We doubt whether moving closer towards God and living more by faith, whether that whole process is really something we can rely on. We've all had the experience of freaking out. 400 odd years before Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, his ancestor Jacob, who later became Israel, had a great vision one night. 
And in this vision, Jacob saw a ladder going up to God, up to heaven. And this ladder was called Jacob's Ladder. Prior to seeing the ladder, Jacob was vexed by his relationship with his twin brother Esau, who Jacob sort of cheated in a way. But he was worried that Esau would come and destroy him and his family. And maybe he was feeling a little bit of guilt about cheating Esau a little bit. Who knows? But he went to bed one night vexed by this problem. And that night in his dream and his vision, he saw this ladder leading up to God. And that's interesting. You know, ladder up to God and up to heaven. I want to climb that ladder. That's interesting in and of itself. But what was more interesting is that there were angels coming down the ladder. Beings, spirits, energies going up and down the ladder between Jacob and heaven, between Jacob and God, Jacob's ladder. Well, when you start climbing the ladder of your life, when you start going rung by rung, by faith, by optimism, by hope, your life improves, your perspective changes, you get higher and higher. And there's always a temptation at some point when you're climbing up the ladder to look out and say, whoa, I got a long way to fall here. If this principle of the reversion of the mean is a true one, you know, not only is this going to be a long fall, it's going to be a painful one. And everyone, once you start climbing up the ladder, you have to decide if you're going to keep going, if you're going to rely on the ladder, or if you're going to worry that it's going to break and it's just a big cosmic joke. And as you wrestle with this question, this problem, you slowly begin to realize something. Having a relationship with God, being divinely inspired, being guided, it's a two-way street. You have to be willing to receive. That often requires more humility than asking, and often a little more patience. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Until next time.